Here's another Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson as we move on to Canto 13 of Dante's Paradiso. We are still on the sphere of the sun, still under the tutelage of St. Thomas Aquinas, who will take up more than three quarters of this canto. The previous canto featured the voice of St. Bonaventure, who finished what he had to say as the canto ended. What's going to happen now? What happens is really quite simple. The two rings of twelve saints each begin to spin in opposite directions, faster than we can imagine, while the souls sing hymns to the Trinity. Only Dante takes twenty-seven lines to describe this to us, or rather to show us how we might imagine what he was seeing, and even then we're going to be able to get only a very approximate idea of what it was like. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more later about the elaborate way Dante speaks to us here. After they have finished what presumably was a structured dance and series of songs, the two circles remain stationary, and, Dante says, they turn towards him and Beatrice. <laughs> Though I'm not sure how you can tell that a sparkling light has turned to face you. Though there's a kind of expectant silence, and then Aquinas begins speaking again. I've harvested your first question, he says, and the love that impels me urges me to answer the second one. Now watch the careful way Aquinas goes about this. First he sets out what beliefs Dante holds that make him question the earlier remark that Solomon excelled all others in wisdom. You believe, and you're right to believe, Aquinas implies, that Adam and Jesus were the two human beings whom God created directly. And, Aquinas implies, Dante remembers that these two men, created directly, must have been the most excellent of all men. So no wonder he's puzzled by the comment that Solomon was unequalled in goodness. It's a paradox which will need to be resolved. And Aquinas is just the man to do it. Much of what we will hear now should be familiar from Beatrice's earlier accounts of creation, but now it's viewed in the context of the Trinity. First of all, we start with a reminder of the distinction between those things that God has created directly and do not die, like angels and the human soul and Adam and Jesus, and those things that degenerate and die, that is, everything else. Both these forms of creation are, in essence, reflections of the idea as brought into being by our Lord through love. And there, if we can see it, is the creative trinity again. The idea is the Father, the Lord, the craftsman, we might say, is the Son, and the love that energizes the work passing from idea to manifestation is the Holy Spirit. And another restatement of the Trinity at work, the viva luce, living light, that is Christ, the second person of the Trinity, shines out from its source, the first person of the Trinity, and is always connected to it, and to that loving spirit passing between the source and the light, the third person of the Trinity. And then that living light, Christ, produces the nine spheres while still retaining his unity as one with the other two. And then, as we were told by Beatrice, the light passes through those spheres, and by the time it comes to earth, it is producing things just briefly passing through life, that is, all the living creatures on earth. But the problem is that the earthly material is capable of reflecting the light only partially, 
and each in slightly different ways, like different qualities in the fruit from the same tree. But it's possible, Aquinas goes on, that the divine creator can directly interfere with intense love and ensure that one of these creatures is perfectly receptive to the light. That's what happened when the Virgin Mary conceived the God-child Jesus, the second perfect human being, directly created, like Adam at the beginning. We may again think of the Father intending this, the Holy Spirit, the impregnating agent, and Christ the Son being incarnated himself, another perfect human being after Adam. Okay? So that confirms the first part of the argument, that there were indeed two creatures perfectly made, and so obviously superior in all ways to Solomon, who was one of the rest of us limited beings. And perhaps to keep the canto from just being one long scholastic lesson, Aquinas stops for a bit of pedagogical connection with his student, and with us, the readers. I've shown you all this, he says, but if I stopped here, then I know the next thing you will say is to repeat that initial question, then why did you say that Solomon was without equal? Now here Aquinas expects Dante to remember the circumstances in which Solomon gained his wisdom. God asked him what he desired, and instead of riches or women or fame, he asked for the wisdom to rule well. Good answer, said God, and gave him this great wisdom. Oh yes, and all the other things thrown in as extra. Dante and we, the readers, are expected to know this, and then expected to register that when Aquinas spoke of Solomon's great vision, he was only referring to his regal prudenza, his kingly wisdom the wisdom to rule with justice. Solomon wasn't asking for any of the other kinds of wisdom, such as theology, logic, physics, and so on. But considering how many bad kings there are, wise kings are something very special. Therefore, Aquinas concludes, both parts of the apparent paradox are true. No one can equal or surpass the two perfect human beings, Adam and Jesus. And at the same time, no one can surpass Solomon, in kingly wisdom, at least. That's Aquinas's conclusion, but he's not quite finished. I'm not sure if it's a reproach or a warning or what, but he tells Dante to be aware of coming to conclusions too quickly. Well, <laughs> this doesn't seem entirely fair to me. He hardly gave Dante time to think more carefully, did he, before he came on with his explanations? Never mind. It's a valuable coda to this canto, and in fact to all these solar cantos. We must slow down and never forget the central importance of making distinctions before we make conclusions. There's an interesting psychological aspect to this too. If we make a hasty conclusion, erring on one side before considering both sides, then our vanity may be so committed to that view that we can no longer think objectively about the question at all. It's like a fisherman who goes out to sea but without the skill to do the job properly. He may return, but not the same. He'll be worse off, having expended that energy without any result. Aquinas doesn't stop there, but goes through a list of people who made the wrong conclusions, and then he warns the people, or rather... Dante, now speaking through Aquinas, warns us, the readers, not to be too sure of our judgments until we have seen enough. 
We don't want to be like someone who thinks a rose bush has died because in the winter it produces no flower. It may not be dead, but just wintering, and we'll see new blossoms in the spring. More importantly, we should not judge other people just by the actions we see them doing. How do we know the way God sees them? And how do we know that the one who appears evil will not repent, or the one who looks like a saint may not at some point fall away? That's the end of the lesson, and the end of the canto. This is something of a strange canto, beginning with that complicated imagery about the concentric dancing and our inadequate power to imagine it, which I'll speak about in a second, and ending with the admonition to use our rational abilities carefully and methodically. And in the middle comes the lesson that begins with a paradox, that is, a statement we are inadequate to see through, and ends with a carefully constructed argument, resolving all the difficulties. So let's look a little more closely at some of these features. Dante has been lately making more of an effort to help us understand what he's talking about. Although he'd said in Canto 10 that we'd have to help ourselves at this table, he's not entirely abandoning us. We're going to have to work hard, but he's there as a kind of coach, helping us along. He starts the canto with a kind of exercise. Imagine, he says, addressing those who want to understand fully what Dante is seeing right now, that is, all of us readers, <laughs> we who have not given up and have made it this far. Imagine, fifteen stars in the sky, the brightest up there, able to be seen even in a hazy night sky. Wait a minute, wait, we may stop at this point with a question, I know I did, and be puzzled by his reference to only fifteen stars. I thought there were two groups of twelve lights, so why fifteen all of a sudden? Aha, but look what I've done. I've jumped to a conclusion too quickly. If I'd waited a few more lines, I'd see where this was going. Okay, fifteen stars. And then take the Wayne or Ursa Major, the Big Dipper, made up of seven stars, and then the two stars on Ursa Minor at the other end from the North Star. I'm oversimplifying the way Dante expresses this. It really would take a whole podcast to unpack his images here, and we'd also need visual aids. <laughs> but then these podcasts do not pretend to offer you definitive, comprehensive accounts of these cantos. I hope that's not news to you. But you see where we've ended up. The fifteen bright stars, the seven from the one constellation, two from the other, and we're now at twenty-four. And along with this assembling of the total number, the imagery invites us to imagine the way the stars seem to revolve around an axle, forming a new constellation, like the Corona Borealis, a constellation forming a ring, only now we're to picture it doubled. And the light of one of the rings is reflected in the other, and they are both revolving, one following the other. And that's like what Dante is seeing. He, he's made us do a lot of work to get this far, and even then he says, we'll see only the shadow of what he's seen. <laughs> this is the problem for a poet who dares to undertake such a work, describing things out of this world, trying to retain imagery for us to focus on, but insisting that the imagery is only approximate. But, but, but all imagery is only more or less approximate, isn't it? That's the point, I suppose. 
Dante could, after all, have just directly said that the lights there, formed into two concentric circles, are spinning around in opposite directions. But look at the effect of what he has done. He's made us look up in our imagination into the night sky, that mysterious realm above us, and he's pretty much lost us in all that ornate imagery. And then he gives us an extra spin with his remark that we're never going to see this as it was anyway. We should by this point be feeling a little woozy, a little outside our ordinary selves. Do you see how this could work? He has not only reached out from the 14th century to speak directly to us, thus strengthening the bond between us, but he has made us work hard, and we're willing to work hard, at least up to a point. So that in the end, we not only get the picture of those two spinning circles, but we have had an emotional ride to get there. Hollander puts it like this. We, as secondary artists, are asked to collaborate, making ourselves responsible for literalizing the details of Dante's vision and keeping them in memory. It is really a quite extraordinary request, even in a poem that perhaps asks for more involvement on the part of its reader than any fictive work in Western literary history before Don Quixote. Well, as they're spinning, these 24 lights are singing praises to the Trinity, lest we forget that central theme of the sphere, and to set our minds on the central theme of the creation lecture Aquinas is about to deliver. I, I think I've explained that lecture already, so I won't go into it further here, but there's an important aspect here that might be good to attend further to. I've just commented that it surely would have been simpler just to tell us that those lights formed two concentric circles instead of that long, complicated explanation. But the explanation did more than just explain, right? And, and here we might get a little impatient at Aquinas for going such a long way around to answer a simple question. He might have just cleared up the paradox by saying that when he said Solomon was unequaled, he was just meaning unequaled in kingly wisdom. Really, that's all Dante needs to be told, isn't it? But let's not be too hasty to jump to conclusions, as we are warned at the end of the canto. The reiteration of the creation dynamics is made in terms of the Trinity, and by now we know that this is not just some dry theological doctrine, but a living relationship within the Godhead itself, a community at the very heart of all things and beyond, and a community integrating variety into unity, a pluribus unum, we might say and then spreading it throughout the creation in varying degrees of excellence. And why go into all that at this point in the poem? Well, what have we just been seeing? What do those two rings represent? It's not quite one ring made up of Dominicans and the other of Franciscans, but the speaker in one ring comes from one order and the speaker in the other comes from the rival order, and each ring is composed of a variety of different thinkers from different traditions. On earth, they may not have got on together, imperfect as they were. But now, thanks to their having opened to divine grace, now they all dance together, keeping their individuality, but working to form constellations, meaningful patterns in the sky. And in doing this, they are reflecting the same kind of internal loving cooperation that originates in the Trinity. No wonder they're singing hymns to the Trinity. Their very dance together is a celebration of that Trinity pattern. Now, 
are we then supposed to take this image and transpose it into our life here? Does this image help reshape our earthly imaginations so that if we see someone we are opposed to, or who opposes us, and there are plenty of these oppositions around, aren't there? We might just be able to see this opposition from that divine perspective and maybe perform some kind of dance with the opposition. Will we remember not to jump to a hasty judgment before we see more of the case? W will this work for us? Only up to a point. Well, as the punchline goes, it wouldn't hurt. Why else read this poem if we're not going to let it transform the way we see our own life and the way we consequently act in it? You'll have noticed that I have demonstrated a few times here the way Aquinas's coda can address our own hasty judgments as we progress through the canto. And so Dante, having begun with that impossible exercise, concludes here with a, <laughs> with a kind of knowing smile. I know you were jumping to conclusions as you read the canto, weren't you? Well, try not to. And so, along with everything else, the Divine Comedy is a treatise on how to read well, which maybe comes to the same thing as how to act well with others in a community. But we're not quite finished with our time on the sphere of the sun. There's more to come next time, but then we rise up to the next planet. See you then.